Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. So did you know that Texas has its very own Twitter laureate? Do you even know what a Twitter laureate is? Would you like to meet our Twitter laureate? I certainly would. So I want to welcome you to the State Bar of Texas podcast. This is Rocky Deer, bringing you Texas's own Twitter laureate, Judge Don Willett. Judge, welcome. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So I got to ask you, I'm just going to cut straight to the chase because this is a question on everybody's mind. What is a Twitter laureate and how did you <laughs> become the Twitter laureate of Texas? Uh, I think it's just sort of legislative serendipity. I was actually at Duke pursuing an LLM degree, an advanced law degree, and it was sort of a random, unexpected happening. But in my pre-federal judge life, I was probably, for better or worse, the most avid, prolific, social media-using judge in America, which I have described as being the tallest munchkin in Oz or like the most popular kid in chess club. It's really, it's a bar so low, it's practically subterranean. But I began using Twitter probably in 2009 as a campaign communications tool as I geared up for my reelection. So it began just sort of in a utilitarian way because I've got to run for reelection or had to in a state of 28 million people spread across 254 counties and a couple of time zones. And it just was apparent to me that it's really political malpractice not to engage voters smartly through social media. We live in a wired world. And you know, Twitter processes more than a billion tweets every 48 hours. And I think we've seen a revolutionary shift in how people communicate, how they share information. So if you're a, an obscure... A judicial candidate running for re-election, and you're trying to build awareness and raise visibility, it's really sort of foolhardy not to try to take advantage of this low-cost but potentially high-yield way uh, to put yourself in front of voters. Well, okay, so that explains the Twitter. But what about the laureate? How did you get the laureate <laughs> part of it? I mean, that's that's almost like being knighted. And so how did you become the Twitter knight of the Texas judiciary? I just made that up, by the way. <laughs> I think people were, were genuinely astonished that a fuddy-duddy judge could step out from behind the bench and come across as halfway ordinary like a real person, not a disembodied brain with a black robe. And I tried to keep my Twitter feed light, engaging, fun, interesting. Of course, I don't talk about pending cases or disputed legal or cultural issues that could come before me. I don't throw partisan sharp elbows. I don't try to score cheap political points. I just try to keep things sort of light and engaging. And I think people were were sort of astonished that a nerdy judge, and believe me, my, my nerd level is upper deck. I mean, I don't, I don't take a backseat to anybody with uh, the level of my nerddom, but I think people were, were amazed that 
an uber nerdy judge could come across as halfway ordinary. Now, when we talk about nerdy, let's just let's just paint a picture. You wear bow ties. Guilty. I do. I wear bow ties pretty frequently. And um, yeah, to look at me, yeah, there's certainly a, a heavy poindexter element there. Let's talk for a second about a couple of things here. First of all, let's talk about where you come from, because this is a fascinating story. Now, I have to thank you for being here. I know as of the date of our conversation today, your mother passed away, your mother Doris passed away about, well, less than a week ago. And here you are talking to us. It sounds like sounds like you're a very resilient guy. And I can't help but think that some of that had to be genetic. Tell us about your mom. Oh, well, thank you for asking. And yeah, resilience is certainly a word that would describe her. But yeah, she passed away um, at the age of 87. And we had her funeral last week. And as my Twitter followers know, as many others know, because I talk about her frequently, she was one of a kind. You know, she was widowed young without a high school diploma. And after my father died, when I was age six, he was 40, my mom hunkered down. She did what a lot of heroic moms do. She hunkered down and worked her heart out to support her family. She was a, a waitress for 55 years. At a truck stop, right? Most of that at the local truck stop near where I grew up. I grew up in a little double-wide trailer out in the country surrounded by cotton and cattle. And the night before I joined my former court, the Texas Supreme Court, the night before my swearing in, I knew I wanted to pay tribute to my mom the following day. And I found a website that'll estimate the number of miles that people walk every day in different occupations letter carrier, super high, waitress, unbelievably high. So I did my quick lawyer math and discovered in her 55 years of waitressing, she had walked roughly from the earth to the moon, which was a quarter million miles, which is hard to wrap your noggin around. It's a huge abstract number, but imagine there's a map of Texas and put your finger in the corner of the panhandle and trace the border of the Lone Star State about 80 times. Wow. Every working year of her life, she made a complete trip around the outside border of Texas, trip and a half just about. And I tell people every step she took, you know, every quarter tip she shoved in her pocket brought me one step closer to this unbelievable privilege I have. So, you know, mom was sweet with a side of of sass, I think. She was um, famously opinionated, always caffeinated, but she was a category <laughs> five combination of grit and oomph and dynamism. You know, she was a force of nature, but also it was a life of really profound sacrifice and tenacity. And it was a life well-lived. It was a life everlasting, well-earned. And I told people at her funeral last week that the greatest tribute we can give her is to grab life by the scruff of the neck, as she did. You know, she lived a life with unbridled exuberance, and she loved with unrivaled extravagance. And her name was Doris. And I tell people to live life not just carpe diem, but carpe Doris, which is the next level. 
and to leave a rich trail as she did of love and laughter. And no doubt growing up, her days were often long, but she prized everyone with gladness and gusto and gratitude. So her life is no doubt one to celebrate, but even more, it is one to emulate. Well, she sounds like a remarkable woman. You know, you talked about, probably if you counted it up, and I'm doing my my version of lawyer's math, and I'm assuming she made millions of steps on her way to the moon. And so those millions of small steps seem to have culminated in a very gigantic leap in terms of the life that you're leading. So let's talk mm-hmm. about 2005. That was the year when Governor Rick Perry nominated you to to fill a vacancy on the Texas Supreme Court. Tell us about the conversation you had with your mom when that happened. Did you call her right away? Did you talk to her about it? What was her reaction to her son becoming a Texas Supreme Court justice? Mom was always proud. Kind of every step of my professional career, I'm the first member of my family to kind of venture off beyond small town life and finish high school, go to college, and from college to law school and grad school and and then private practice and working within government for a long time. So she was somewhat accustomed to me having this sort of succession of really exhilarating, consequential jobs. But I think serving on the Supreme Court was special for her. And, you know, she and I growing up would watch a lot of kind of law and order dramas, a lot of cop shows on TV. And she also, in her post-waitress life, she worked for the local Justice of the Peace in my little rinky-dink small town. Wow, okay. And I think the when I went onto the bench, I think that was extra special for her, more so even than my working at the White House or working in the governor's mansion. It was an out-of-body experience serving on the court and kind of sharing that experience with her. And because she was so integral to my getting there, my formal investiture was in November of 05, and I chose the date I chose, November 21st, because it was my heroic mom's 75th birthday. Wow, okay. And I wanted to pay tribute to her because she was kind of the the indispensable secret sauce ingredient to my being there. And you said that you serving on the Texas Supreme Court held a special significance. You said it was more special even than you serving in the White House or in the governor's mansion. What was it about the Supreme Court that fascinated her so much? I think she, like me, just has a a special soft spot for that branch of government. You know, we inhabit an age of a lot of political snarling. And in the political branches, legislative and executive branch, if you have enough raw political power at your disposal, you can just ram and jam and cram through whatever you want without a lot of apology or accommodation or explanation. But I think my mom and certainly I viewed the judiciary as different, as the most elegant branch of government. And you know, centuries ago, there were these two great presidents. They were both commanding generals. And 
And they sort of underscored how indispensable a strong judiciary is. So first was George Washington, who wrote a letter to his attorney general, and he said, the due administration of justice is the firmest pillar of good government. This iconic phrase that's sort of etched in stone among that famous courthouse in Manhattan. But then 53 years later, President Sam Houston told the Congress of the Republic of Texas, he said, an able, honest, and enlightened judiciary should be the first object of every people. So two presidents, one precedent, and they agreed. I think my mom believed, and I certainly believe, that a strong judiciary is essential to a strong state and to a strong United States. And I revere the law. I think it's a majestic thing. And when you confer the title judge or justice on someone, you place in human hands that profound majesty. So let's maybe talk for a second about the role of the judiciary. You know, I I think most lawyers, if we're all practicing lawyers, would agree that a strong judiciary is necessary and crucial to the functioning of a strong democracy. But there's a debate, and there's been a debate raging probably since the very beginnings of our judicial journey, about the role that judges should play. And we hear the terms judicial activism, we hear the terms, you know, strict interpretationist or maybe judicial restraint. We hear terms like legislating from the bench. We've also heard judicial engagement. Can you kind of dissect those terms for us? Tell us, in your view, what the role of a judge ought to be, or the role of the judiciary as a whole maybe ought to be. Right. If I were writing a judicial job description, the paramount attribute, in my view, would be a surpassing fidelity to the rule of law. The rule of law demands clear rules that are consistently applied. So you're not buffeted by gusts of popular opinion. It's really all about the even-handed application of principle, about no favorite decision-making, no finger on the scale, no finger in the wind. You're not imposing your own personal vision of justice, however strongly felt it may be. You know, during law school a quarter century ago, um, and this is probably true of, of law students today, you read these judicial opinions written by these epic common law legends like Benjamin Cardozo and Learned Hand and Oliver Wendell Holmes. Mm-hmm. And it's really all about them sort of finding an outcome, a rationale that they believe is just and fair and equitable. But we largely don't inhabit that legal landscape anymore. Lawmakers are fond of lawmaking, so they pass a raft of new laws. And every new law sort of shrinks the universe of judge-made common law. So the lion's share of modern-day appellate judging, what I do, the overwhelming bulk of appellate judging is reading language and deciding what it means and giving it its fairest, most forthright, most straightforward interpretation. And my view is lawmakers make laws and 
having worked in other branches of government on the state and the federal level, I think I know policymaking and I know judging and I know the difference. And it's certainly not my role as I see it to revise what lawmakers have enacted under the guise of interpreting it. So what is that difference? He said the difference between policymaking and judging. Is there a way to articulate where that line is? Um, well, I do my best to take language as I find it. I'm looking out my window at the this majestic dome of the Texas Capitol, and I worked for Governor Bush there for four years and then followed him to D.C., so I'm sort of familiar with the role of policymakers. You know, they they take testimony, they have hearings, they craft and revise legislation driven by their view of what is in the best public interest of the people of Texas or of the nation. Judges, in my view, have a more modest role in our constitutional architecture when you're interpreting what the political branches have passed, you're sort of limited to the four corners of what they enacted. And I don't view it as my role to sort of embellish or try to spruce up or edit you know, their handiwork under the guise of interpreting it. So I'm a, a, a textualist at heart. And I think my, my former court, the Texas Supreme Court, is a very text-centered court, but we take language as we find it, and we take lawmakers at their word, and we believe the truest manifestation of what they intended is what they enacted. So you've been both on the—you were on the Texas Supreme Court. Now you're on the Federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Can you maybe describe for us the biggest difference— that you found when going from one court to the other? They're both appellate courts, but have there been some profound differences that maybe you weren't expecting when you moved from one to the other? They are different in many ways. Fundamentally, though, the judicial toolkit is the same. It is fundamentally a job about language, about reading and researching and writing. My title has changed from justice to judge, But my task has not changed. I'm still judging best I can according to the rule of law, which I think is a sacred trust. So I've been a lawyer now for almost exactly half my life, almost to the day half my life. And I've been a judge for half of my lawyer life. And it's been really surreal to return to the court where I began my career as a law clerk a quarter century ago. I'm officing next door to the office where I was a law clerk on this court 25 years ago. The volume on this court and the velocity are next level. The conveyor belt never stops. It is truly like Lucy and Ethel in the chocolate factory. Um, mm-hmm. my former I'm old court, enough to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> apologies to your younger listeners, but... The show's called I Love Lucy. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had discretionary review on my former court. We got to pick and choose our docket. Right. Exactly. And I missed that singular power. So the volume and the velocity are truly next level on this court. And also just the rhythm of the court, the pace of the court. Instead of hearing 
every case with eight other smart colleagues, deciding every case as an en banc court, meaning the entire mm-hmm. membership collectively sure. deciding the case, which gave a measure, a really satisfying measure of finality, right? Mm-hmm. You were the final word right. on what Texas law is, what it means. My current court, of course, uh, I serve now in an intermediate court, but I sit with two different people every month. And this month, I could be sitting with someone from Jackson, Mississippi, or Shreveport, Louisiana. And next month, it'll be two different colleagues and two different colleagues the month after that. So there's a bit more sort of isolation. You're not under the same roof anymore, down the hall from each other, able to poke your head in and and sit down face-to-face and talk one-to-one. So things are a lot more driven by emails and memos. There's just not as much interpersonal face-to-face contact as before. And of course, the docket is radically different. It is really exhilarating to wade into some really weighty uh, federal questions. And I've thoroughly enjoyed expanding hopefully refining, sharpening my judicial toolkit. And I do miss my discretionary docket. And I remember before I took this job, I spoke with a number of friends of mine who had been state high court judges who were now on federal appellate courts. And to a person, they all really missed their discretionary docket, having control over the cases they hear. But they all universally uh, we're so exhilarated at the exciting array of, of high-stakes federal questions they get to decide, and it was a new and fresh professional chapter for them. So I'm looking forward to throwing myself full throttle into my day job for the next generation with, with no thought of re-election or inelegant fundraising or any of that. So when I took my first judicial oath... 4,717 days ago, I was a 30-something father of one, and today I'm a 50-something father of three, and one day, God willing, I'll become a grandfather while still serving as a jurist. It is a noble enterprise, and I'm so richly privileged to do it. Well, I'm a 40-something father of one, and I'm not a judge, and I've never been in the White House, so you've just you've just deflated my <laughs> entire world. So thank you, Judge, for that. But look, let's talk for a second about your types of cases, the kinds of cases that really, really fascinated you. And I, of course, I'm not asking for specific case names, but are there issues that when they come across your desk or when they did come across your desk when you were at the Texas Supreme Court that you thought, okay... This is what I come to work for every day. This is the fun stuff. Mm. Have you ever given that any thought? Is there a type of case or a type of question or a type of argument that just just really lit your fire when you're on the bench? Sure. At my former court, there was no shortage of, of high-stakes, high-drama, consequential cases, and some of them were worth billions of dollars. Sure. Um, and, of course, at my former court, having discretionary review, by and large, the ones we took were were, as a rule, pretty complex and pretty weighty, and where lower courts perhaps had disagreed on what the law is or what it, what it requires. So they were all uniformly high stakes and meaningful. Um, but the ones I think that really were of special interest to me were those who raised questions of constitutional architecture. How does mm-hmm. our Constitution, both Texas and federal, how does it allocate 
governing power. You know, when I was going through law school, I did a, I did a political science sort of graduate degree at the same time. And I've always had a fascination with government, with public service and public policy. And I've spent, I guess now 22 of my 25 lawyer years working in one branch of government or another on the state or federal level. So I've got a a fascination with with government, with how the Constitution divvies up governing power. So those cases, those dealing with kind of building block elemental issues of constitutional architecture, those really jumped out and were of special interest to me. And there were plenty of them then and maybe even more regular now in my current docket. But you know, some of the cases we heard on my former court were important, certainly for what we held, but just as important, in my view as a judge, is why we held the way we did, how we reached that conclusion. Not so much who won, but why. I remember uh, mentioning how my former court, the Supreme Court, is a pretty text-centric court, a court unwilling to revise statutes under the guise of interpreting them. So often, even as important as the holding, you know, who eventually prevailed, was how we got there methodologically. And methodology is, and you really can't overstate the importance of how judges decide. And you have a, a reading list for my incoming law clerks every year. It's a pretty lengthy reading list, but a lot of it is about judicial decision-making, about methodology, about the interpretation of language. Again, that's sort of the lion's share of modern-day appellate judging. So I've got a really keen interest, not so much in, in who wins, but why and how, and how does the court reason its way to a conclusion. That's what makes the judiciary in my view, again, the most elegant branch. We're the only branch really expected to explain why we're doing what we're doing. We reason our way methodically, step by step, to a conclusion, which I find really satisfying intellectually. Do you think that as lawyers, we understand that? Or do you think when we're approaching a case, be it at the trial level or at the appellate level, do we need to do a better job of sort of focusing on the why, not so much that we win, but why we should win. No, I think lawyers as a group get that. I think you know, advocates, especially skilled and experienced appellate specialists, you know, they get that consummately. I think the general public, often they look at who won a case and who lost a case, and then they either cheer it or jeer it based on their own sort of pre-existing policy preference. But I think that just sort of maybe betrays a fundamental kind of misperception about the judiciary. I don't have a dog in these fights. I mean, it doesn't really matter to me who wins or loses, but I'm all about, as best I can, doing my dead-level best to apply these principles even-handedly, impartially. But I think there is a fair bit of kind of civic illiteracy, not just about the judicial branch, but about government from soup to nuts. You know, we inhabit an age of really staggering civic ignorance. There's a survey done every year around Constitution Day, which is, of course, in September. And the most recent one found that barely a quarter of all American adults, 26 percent, 
could correctly name all three branches of government. Mm. And a full third, 33%, could not name even one branch of government. Wow. 37% could not name one right guaranteed under the First Amendment. Mm. More people can name the three stooges than the three branches of government. And even a few years ago, there was a, a member of Congress on one of the Sunday news programs who said, yeah, we've got three branches of government. We have a House, and we have a Senate, and we have a president. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, man. What about, what about my branch? What, what my daughter calls the branch with the costumes. But, um, you know, Judge Judy, I think, just turned 75, and 10% of American college graduates believe that Judge Judy serves on the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, good Lord. Okay. And it is one thing not to know dry, sort of arcane factoids like the year the Constitution was signed, right? 1787. Mm -hmm. Sure. But it's petrifying that so many of our fellow citizens, they flub even the most foundational concepts like separation of powers and checks and balances. So, I mean, the first three words of the Constitution are we the people, not we the government, not we the judges, not we the subjects, not we the anything else. It's we the people. And Justice Brandeis, in the last century, I think he put it well. He said, the only title in our democracy superior to that of president is that of citizen. You know, ultimate authority rests with us, meaning government is only going to be as great or as responsive as we demand it to be. In this constitution we have, this exquisite charter of freedom, Madison's handiwork, it is, it requires fierce defenders and not feeble spectators. So I think we have to get back as a nation. We have to get back into the civic education game. We have to educate young people about our constitutional heritage. How do we as lawyers do that? I think lawyers are uniquely suited, given their legal horsepower, given their familiarity day to day with the building blocks of how government works. But hopefully lawyers can be inspired by people like Justice O'Connor. Since leaving the Supreme Court in 2005, she has devoted her life to civic education. And and she doesn't pull any punches. You know, she says, I think this is a pretty accurate quote, knowledge about our government is not handed down through the gene pool. And she's right. This is not mm-hmm. something hardwired into our DNA as Americans, the habits of citizenship. They must be taught and learned anew by every generation, just as you would teach and learn math or reading or foreign language. And President Reagan said, freedom is never more than one generation from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. And that's true. There was a recent survey that asked American adults 10 questions from the U.S. citizenship test that is given annually to immigrants every year to, you know, who want to become mm-hmm. Americans. So a recent survey asked Americans 10 questions from the test. Do I even want to know? <laughs> oh, I don't think so. I hope you're sitting down. 71% 
could not identify the Constitution as the supreme law of the land. 63% could not name one of their U.S. senators. 62% could not identify the governor of their state. And this is sort of my hobby horse now, and it's sort of what I speak about most often around the country. And I just try to tell people that American citizenship is immeasurably precious, but it is not a spectator sport. That's an interesting observation. Let's drill down into that. What do you mean by spectator sport? Who do you think the spectators are in this version of it that you're describing? As I said earlier, I think because the Constitution vests ultimate authority with us, with we the people, you know, government is only going to be as responsive, as great as we demand it to be. There's this great story, classic story, of Benjamin Franklin. So it's 1787, the Constitutional Convention is wrapped up. Everybody's exiting Independence Hall in Philadelphia. A woman rushes up to Ben Franklin and says, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And mm -hmm. Dr. Franklin famously replies, a republic if you can keep it. So Franklin knew the most vital ingredient for America to work is an engaged citizenry. That's why Brandeis said the only title in our democracy superior to that of president is that of citizen. And I think every year these survey results on Constitution Day, they get worse and more dispiriting and more disheartening. And I think we've really, we inhabit this age of really staggering civic illiteracy. It's really stunning. So now that you're no longer running for election, are you still planning on using social media? And if so, is that going to be the message on your social media feeds? Are you going to be trying to educate people and encourage them to know more about our government and our democracy? Honestly, I'm unsure if I'll return or not. I hope to. I think there's enormous civic education upside in humanizing and demystifying the judicial branch. Sure. That said, you know, appellate judging is an intensely collegial enterprise. And above all, I want to be an effective member of this court. And to be effective, you must forge fruitful, collegial, respectful relationships with your colleagues. And, you know, membership on my court spans generations and more senior members of my court um, you know, came of age in a time where social media wasn't ubiquitous, wasn't nearly as prevalent as it is now. I do know of a handful of federal appellate judges who are on Twitter, but more in a more in a passive lurker capacity, not really actively mm -hmm. churning out content. Um, and I certainly I'm on every day, kind of keeping track of all the warp speed happenings in the world. Twitter is my primary news feed. It's how oh, I stay abreast okay. of what's going on in the wider mm. world. I'm not sure if I will return. If I did, I imagine the content would probably change. The frequency and the content would likely change. It'd probably be 
almost entirely civic education focused, trying to up our nation's civics IQ. But I tell you, it has been somewhat refreshing to be on sabbatical for a while. It's been sort of a burden lifted because it does require some attention, some energy, some care and feeding. Do you think that maybe we're in some ways over-engaged, you know, with with social media and with the 24-hour news cycle and just all this information being thrown at us, as opposed to the old days when you just had news in the morning and in the evening? Do you think maybe it's over-engaging us in certain ways to where we're just, we're getting burned out? Maybe it's not that we're disengaged, we're just, we're just not engaged in the right ways. Mm. You know, it's just a hypothesis, but after hearing you speak, I wanted to kind of throw that out there. What do you think of that? It's a fair comment, and I think it goes to a larger point of the increasing tendency among Americans who sort of self-segregate, self-isolate ideologically and philosophically. There was a great book came out 10 or 15 years ago called The Big Sort, and it was about this growing phenomenon across America of people to sort of hunker down in these sort of self-reinforcing silos. I guess echo chambers, as they call them. Echo chambers. So the neighborhood in which you live, the schools your children attend, the cable stations you listen to, the radio talk shows you listen to, the folks on Twitter you follow and don't follow. Are you simply sort of inhabiting this world where you're getting this constant reinforcement of your already held beliefs Or are you exposed to an eclectic way of thinking about and seeing the world? I mean, on Twitter, I followed a pretty wide, diverse mix of people, which I think makes life interesting. But I think a lot of people are content just to kind of be surrounded by 24-7 you know, they read things, they listen to things, they watch things that simply sort of reinforce their already held beliefs. And I think life is richer when you do it the other way. But certainly Twitter, you know, the forced concision of it, you know, Twitter is not the best forum for nuanced, deep engagement on weighty issues. You know, that forced concision it's really hard to find the the just right blend of content and nuance. That brevity is really kind of at odds with kind of rich sort of understanding. So it's been nice to kind of take a break for a while. And I still, again, I still follow a range of people. And it's how I stay on top of everything percolating around the globe. But I do encourage people with their friendships, both real and digital, to hang out with a, a wide, eclectic mix of people, and um, which I think makes life immeasurably rich. Makes for a more interesting dinner party for sure, doesn't it? So, <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Well, now looking back, what do you think we as lawyers, or even the general public, can learn about maybe the ethics or maybe the reputational factors behind social media? What are some good do's and don'ts that you tried to employ when you were active on social media? Sure. Well, as a judge, you know, with, as with anything, judges must be judicious, whether they're crafting a 280-footnote opinion or a 280-character 
tweet. So I always diligently self-censored and I aimed for carefulness and a few cardinal rules. I never talked about pending cases or disputed legal or cultural issues that could come before me. As I mentioned, I didn't throw partisan sharp elbows or try to score cheap political points. I just try to keep things light and witty and engaging. And I, I think I navigated the ethical boundaries fairly well. Thankfully, the head of the Texas Judicial Conduct Commission would use me in trainings on social media to baby judges. She would use me not as a cautionary tale, not as a case study in don't let this happen to you, Mm -hmm. but thankfully as an example of how a judge can harness social media effectively and ethically. And there are also some legal ethics case books that are now discussing judicial use of social media. And I'm glad they cite me as someone who who did so in a way that demystified the judiciary, but also in a way that did not detract from the dignity of the judiciary. But there's no question that more use of social media means more bad use of social media. And lawyers and judges are continually falling prey to Facebook fumbles and Twitter misfires, just a lot of ethical pitfalls. But I think people have to remember that especially judges, you've always got to be judicious. And Twitter is just a method of communication. It is no different than standing on a stage behind a microphone. And the immediacy of it, you know, that digital platform is pretty remarkable. Things can go viral in the blink of an eye. But I think you just have to be mindful that it's just a method of communication. And the same canons of judicial conduct, the same ethical rules for lawyers apply to social media as they do to any other means of messaging. Well, Judge, I want to thank you for all the wisdom you've been imparting to us today. I do have one final question, if you don't mind, because you've been very generous with your time with us. (laughs) Go ahead. But you were on the Texas Supreme Court for about 12 years. So let's, and now you've been on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals for about six months now, I think. So if we were to fast forward another 12 years, and you had to look back, what do you think the Don Willett from 12 years from now is going to say, reflecting back on this next 12 years that you're about to embark on? What do you think is going to be your answer to that question? Well, I think I have certainly endured my final job interview. In the drawer next to me, I've got business cards from every job I've ever held, from law school graduation to the present spanning you know, 25 years. I'm about to take them um, and get them framed. It's kind of showing the sort of professional journey that I've been on. You were a rodeo bull rider too, and you didn't mention that. So do you have a business <laughs> card from that era? I don't. Um, but oh, the lesson wow, okay. I learned from rodeo bull riding is life is uncertain and you got to hold on tight. <laughs> and uh, <Hold> on. <laughs> you'd be surprised at how handy that bull riding comes in serving on a multi-member appellate court. But I used to be a rodeo bull rider um, and a, a drummer. I, was, I would perform as a professional drummer in different bands, performing in clubs and bars all over the Dallas area. But, but I love what I do. It's a magic combination to love what you do and believe that it matters, believe that it counts. 
I know a lot of people who are well compensated, but somewhat disenchanted, somewhat dissatisfied, somewhat unfulfilled. And I've been enormously blessed with a really rich measure of divine happenstance to have a series of jobs I love and none more than judging. So I want to throw myself full throttle into my day job for the next generation. And, you know, the founders, they were very concerned about the judiciary and about judicial independence. The Declaration of Independence itself mentions judicial independence. You know, one of our biggest beefs with King George III was, as the Declaration puts it, he has made judges dependent on his will alone. It was part of what the Declaration described as this long train of abuses and usurpations. And the revolution, you know, produced this revolutionary design, these three separate co-equal branches, ambition, counteracting ambition, as Madison put it, including Article 3, which enshrines judicial independence, which endows judges with, federal judges, with constitutional Kevlar, life tenure, which I think has proven indispensable to the success of the Republic. So go back 2000 years and Socrates said four things belong to a judge to hear courteously, to answer wisely, to consider soberly and to decide impartially. And I believe we are, as John Adams declared a nation of laws and not of men. And I think judges must be independent but we can never be independent of the Constitution or of the laws that we are sworn to uphold. So my pledge today and every day and 12 years from today uh, will be to never shrink from that sacred earth. Wow. Well, <laughs> I don't think we could ask for anything more. So, you know, look, Judge Willett, you've been so very gracious and generous with your time here. I know this gives us all a lot to think about and a lot to reflect on. So... You know, I want to thank you for joining us. I've been delighted. I've been thrilled to join you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And I want to thank you, dear listener, for joining us. This is the State Bar of Texas podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Deer. It's been a pleasure having you with us today. And remember, life is a journey, folks. So thank you for tuning in. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to texasbar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.